I'm Amy Jo Martin. Welcome to the Why Not Now show. You know that thing you've been thinking about doing? Yeah, that one. Why not now? Have you ever actually taken the time to ask yourself, what's stopping me? Let's talk it through. This is your chance to give that idea the attention it deserves and take action. Each episode, I have a chat with a fascinating person from entrepreneurs to athletes, celebrities, my parents, rocket scientists, and all walks of life. We talk through a critical time when they've asked themselves, why not now? We dissect that day or even that moment, step by step. Hi everyone, welcome back. Thank you for joining me and listening. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. It would mean a lot to me. Today we have Dr. Gay Hendricks on the show. He has been a leader in the fields of relationship transformation and body-mind transformation for more than 45 years. He earned his PhD from Stanford and served as professor of counseling psychology at the University of Colorado for 21 years. He has written more than 40 books. Two of my favorites include The Big Leap and Five Wishes. Gay has appeared on more than 500 radio and TV shows, including Oprah, CNN, CNBC, and many others. I've been fortunate enough to have the opportunity to work with Gay recently, and his wisdom is unmatched. Most voices of authority in this realm stick with the academic theory, but Gay has a beautiful way of blending in and weaving through his life experiences into his teachings. I'm grateful to have him on the show. We tackle the most taboo topics on the Why Not Now show. Oftentimes, you're hearing guests share things they've never shared before. In the spirit of things we don't typically talk about, you should know that the Why Not Now show is supported by Poopery. Yep, the original before you go toilet spray. It's magic. My friends at Poopery have literally taken the smell out of you know what. This pure blend of essential oils stops bathroom odor before it begins. Visit poopery.com and why not now listeners get 20% off with code why not now. That's all one word. Also, you can now get Poopery at Target. Gay, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot, Amy Joe. Great, great to be with you. Well, I've really been looking forward to this because, as you know, Susie Batiste, a good friend and, and someone I consider a mentor, has been on the show from time to time, and your name keeps coming up and your concepts and your books. So Susie said to me the other day, why don't you have Gay on the show? <laughs> we can get it straight directly from you. So here we are to, to learn from you, but thank you for, for coming on. And in the spirit of why not now, let's get straight into our first question. And the goal with this is really to help and encourage listeners to ask themselves the why not now question too. So can you share a time when you've had a big decision 
decision to make. And you said to yourself, why not now? And we'll dissect that day, that hour, that moment when you went from idea to action. Yes. Well, my wife, Katie, and I have been together now 38 years. Um, she uh, happens to be up in uh, Santa Cruz teaching a seminar uh, today. So, um, But uh, we've written a number of books together on relationship. And uh, one of the more popular ones is called Conscious Loving. Another one is our more recent one called Conscious Loving Ever After, which is for people over 40 years of age who are in relationships. So I'll take you back to a time in my pre-Katie days when I was just beginning to figure out what was going on in my life in regard to relationships. And so um, I'll zip back uh, 38 years to a moment when I was in the middle of an argument with a woman named Carol that I'd been in kind of an on and off again relationship with for the past few years. And this goes back to 1979 now is when I'm talking about. And we were in the middle of this argument. And I don't even remember what the argument was about because I had an insight during the argument that completely changed my life. There was this moment when we were having this argument where suddenly it dawned on me this was not our 500th argument that we'd had in the years we'd known each other. It was our 500th version of the same argument. And I realized there was this, I don't know where it came from, but there was this moment of enlightenment that kind of dropped in on me in, in the argument. And I realized that it was a repeating pattern. And what would happen was one of us wouldn't be telling the truth about something. Like um, it might be something I was angry at her about or something she was angry at me about but hadn't been talking about or something that I felt hurt about that I hadn't brought to her attention. So we would be concealing something inside ourselves. And then because of that concealment, we would then start projecting onto the other person and blaming the other person rather than opening up to what was going on inside and bringing that out. So I, I realized that there was this act of concealment, this act of hiding the truth inside, and then an act of blame that would come out of that, where I'd be blaming her. And then she would, of course, start blaming me. And we would get into this round and round kind of thing of each of us would be fighting for the victim position. And so um, we, um, I, I had this insight right there in this moment. And she asked me, what's going on? You know, she saw this look come over my face. And I said, I just had this most amazing insight. And I just described it to her. And I said, wouldn't it be amazing if we could create a, a new relationship where both of us were honest with each other and both of us took responsibility for things that came up rather than blaming the other person? And that was my moment of realization. But then it turned out that she wasn't really interested in that kind of relationship. And so I made a choice. I, I guess what happened was I went back to my little cabin or cottage that I lived in at the time, which is a little one bedroom cottage. And um, I sat down on the floor and uh, just kind of sat down. And I'd been meditating for a few years. So I kind of sat down in a meditative position and was just kind of relaxed there on this uh, cushion on the floor. And 
during that time, I think it took me about an hour, but I just sat there asking, what do I really want in relationships? And uh, I was in my early 30s at the time, and I'd had a number of relationships in my teens and 20s, and you know, they would all go for a while, and six months later or a couple of years later, they would kind of fall apart. And I compared it to um, setting sail on the Titanic. You know, there was always great fanfare in the relationship, and then we would hit the, hit an iceberg somewhere down the line. And I didn't realize that I was hitting the same iceberg over and over again and thinking it was a different iceberg each time. But no matter what the relationship was I was in, they would all have this certain kind of dynamic to them was that we would be criticizing each other and hiding the truth from each other. And so I didn't realize at the time that that's the way a lot of relationships work. It wasn't just purely um, something that happened in my relationships, but I really hadn't. I was a psychologist at the time, but I mostly worked with individuals on self-esteem kind of issues and peak potential kinds of issues. And I never worked with um, couples in a relationship situation. So in that moment, I sat there on the, the floor meditating and I realized that I wanted three things in a relationship with a woman. One was I wanted a relationship where both of us were absolutely honest, where we both could share anything with each other, that we could freely tell the truth to each other, and that we wouldn't punish each other for being honest, whatever it was. The second thing I wanted was a relationship where we didn't do the whole blame game all the time. And I wanted a relationship where both people would take responsibility for things that came up rather than always projecting or blaming them onto the other person. So that was number two. Number three, I realized that I wanted a relationship where both of us were committed to our creative processes. And at the time, and still now, I write for a couple of hours every day. And it's been a lifelong pattern of mine way back into the 1960s to take a couple of hours each day, usually at the beginning of the day, and work on whatever writing project I'm working on. And so I, I still do that. It's one of my sacred times of the day. So that had been a conflict in relationships I was in because the other person would sometimes say, well, gee, you, you just want to spend a couple hours a day by yourself. You don't want to do as many things with me. And so we'd get into a hassle about my creative passion. And so I wanted to be in a relationship where both people could be equally committed to their own creativity. It could be didn't matter whether it was making writing a symphony or making a soup or whatever it was, as long as the other person was passionate about their own creativity. And so I figured out those were the three sacred things that I really wanted in a relationship. And so I made a what I would now call a manifestation request of the universe. I kind of said out loud and had this idea, I want a relationship where all three of those things are present. And if it's not in the cards for me to have that, I'll be by myself. I'll be okay being alone, but I'm never going to settle for less. And so I think that's my version of what you're talking about. Why not now is that suddenly I developed this heartfelt inner commitment that this was the kind of relationship I wanted to be in and I wouldn't settle for anything else. And then the magic happened because a month later, I met my now mate of 38 years, <laughs> Kathleen, also known as Katie. And I had this amazing conversation with her. Our first connection 
where I basically said, I'd love to ask you out for a cup of coffee, but I need to let you know that I only want relationships where both people tell the truth, both people take responsibility instead of blaming, and both people are committed to their relationship, I mean, to their creative power in their life, in their relationships. And on those terms, would you like to go have a cup of coffee with me? (laughs) (laughs) I love this. That was the beginning of all the magic 38 years ago. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with Gay. I want to tell you about my partners at Design Pickle. You know when you're in a pickle because you need a design, but you don't have the time or maybe even the skill to do it yourself. Many of us have been there. Design Pickle has been a lifesaver for me. Here's how they're set up. You pay a flat rate monthly fee of $370 and you're given a dedicated designer for all of your needs. You heard that right. Unlimited graphic designs, unlimited requests, and the first 14 days are risk-free. You get a full refund if you cancel in the first two weeks. Why not now, listeners like yourself, get 30% off their first month, which means you only pay $259 for your first month at Design Pickle. You can go to designpickle.com forward slash why not now to redeem the offer. For me, the process has been painless and ego-free. In fact, many of the posts you're seeing on my social media channels were created by my buddies at Design Pickle, specifically Jacob at Design Pickle. That's what's cool is that you get a dedicated designer. I'm on a first name basis with my designer. A mentor once said to me, just because you can doesn't always mean you should. Do what you're uniquely qualified to do. Design Pickle helps me do just that. So your first month is only $259. Go to designpickle.com forward slash why not now to redeem the offer. So, I mean, just listening to the genesis of this and the spark of it really sounds like you caught yourself witnessing this pattern that you were making and this, wait, I've been here before, I've heard this before, something triggered in you to then go on and identify and then figure out eventually, you know, what it was that you wanted. But that's a really interesting take on why not now is why not break the pattern? Why not identify the pattern? And, um, you know, I've, I've been thinking about this actually a lot lately, and the biggest part sometimes is just realizing that there's one going on, <laughs> because then you were able to arrive at your uh, bigger revelation after that. But it, it's, it's really an interesting take on um, rather than, you know, why not open a bakery or why not lose some weight? Why not identify the pattern first? That's that's just, I love taking a step back and really getting to the root of it. And you've worked with thousands of people, Gay, and, and you've witnessed countless critical moments like this when people go from dreaming to doing or idea to action. With all of your experience, are there any key takeaways about these situations that you can shed light on or, or the psychology involved during this bridge between idea and action? Yes, I have a, we use an acronym around here, F-A-C-T, which stands for facing, accepting, choosing, and taking action. And it's a, a way to remind ourselves what the actual key steps are in any kind of transformational process. Because you touched on this a moment ago yourself when you said that 
first you have to identify the pattern or kind of claim it or or what we call facing it. It's like that moment, like a good friend of mine, uh, Jim, has um, benefited a lot from work in Alcoholics Anonymous over the years. He has about 19 or 20 years of sobriety. And he was telling me the other day that there's this magic moment when a person stands up in front of the room for the first time and says, hi, my name is John and I'm an alcoholic, or my name is Mary and I'm a drug addict, or my name is Jerry and I'm a gambling addict, whatever it is that they're opening up to, it's that moment of facing it as it is, rather than trying to distort it or stonewall it or justify it or any of those kinds of things. And, and he was telling me that like the day before he did that, he the day before he stood up and owned that he was an alcoholic, if you'd asked him, are you an alcoholic? He would say, no, I can handle it okay. It's just that occasionally I have three-week blackouts. And so it was in an extreme level at his life, but he had never really faced it. And so there was this magic involved of just facing something as it is. And I think that's a key first step. But the second step also grows out of that. We call that the A step or accepting. So facing and then accepting, because you need to, whatever it is, accept whatever is at the root of it. You know, like in um, Alcoholics Anonymous, they have a saying that you don't get to know why you're drinking until after you stop drinking, because at, at the moment you interrupt the habit, then you get a chance to kind of accept inside what it was that was driving the whole destructive pattern in the first place. And so there are things about ourselves that if we don't accept them, they continue to bother us. They continue to send worry thoughts in our mind and they continue to distort our behavior. But the moment you accept it, then it loses its power to create pain in your life. So the first two steps, facing and accepting, the F and the A. The C step is choosing. At some point, you may have to make a a real choice because you and I and all the people who probably uh, listen to your show are creative type people. We have it at the center of ourselves, often a burning desire to release our creative potential. And I think that's a sacred bond that people have between themselves and the universe. But it also has an effect on people around you. You know th that we all have this creative potential inside, and it's our obligation and our duty and our joy in life to open up and express that creative potential. And if we do that, then we get to have a thriving life. I call it living in your genius or living in your zone of genius. In my book, The Big Leap, it's a lot about how to thrive in that genius area of yourself. So I think that you need to make choices, though, to favor that in yourself. So every day, for example, we have a choice whether to expand our creativity or to remain stagnant to it, to keep letting it lie in potential inside ourselves. And there's a real danger about allowing your creative potential to lie unexpressed in yourself. As a matter of fact, one of my favorite quotations 
is uh, from the Gospel of Thomas, which was one of the apocryphal books of the Bible that didn't make it into the official Bible back in the early days of our um, millennia. The uh, original quote said, if you bring forth what is within you, what is within you will save you. But if you do not bring forth what is within you, what is within you will destroy you. And it was a very profound when I realized what the meaning of that was. It moved me very deeply because I had seen exactly the same thing in coaching people over the years. And it didn't matter whether it was a 65-year-old widow who was trying to cope with the loss of a spouse of 50 years, or it was a CEO with a business that employed 15,000 people. It was a lot about whether that choice and commitment had been made in life to bring forth your true creative potential. So that's FAC, facing, accepting, and choosing. But the step that really makes the biggest difference in the final analysis is whether you take the final step of making that choice and taking action based on it. So um, we always encourage our students to write down F-A-C-T on their refrigerator and on their, uh, you know, put a little card that reminds you on your dashboard because whatever problem is surfacing in your life, you can always solve it with that four-step move to face it, to accept what's underneath it, to make a new choice, and to take action. And there have been so many times in my life when I couldn't figure out what action I was supposed to take. And then that gave me a cue because if there's any action you can't figure out what to take, look for what the choice is underneath it that you need to make. And if you can't make a choice, look for what you haven't accepted underneath that. And if you can't accept it, find out what you haven't faced yet. So you can kind of take apart any problem that you have by using that four-step way of analyzing it. That's really helpful. I think reverse engineering like that, I think would become very helpful for listeners who have, have reached out and said to me, you know, Amy Jo, I'm ready for something different. I'm ready to make a big change but I'm not sure what that is or um, to kind of go backwards in, in this process of the FACT. That's very interesting. And I think that will be a tool for a lot of people. One of the things that's happened as I'm speaking with individuals like yourself and and hearing for from so many expert why-notters, as I call you, or renegades, is that these themes have started to surface in terms of threads that that are similar that individuals have taken in order to green light their their action so in that action phase and one of them is not giving themselves an out so putting some sort of mechanism in place to where they hold themselves accountable and there's a henry thoreau quote that says um if you want to take the island burn your boat and so it's kind of that almost, um, you know, a reversible out. Is that a pure psychology move in terms of making sure that that action step is, is checked off? I mean, kind of pushing yourself over the, the starting line. Um, do you see that often or is that, is that just kind of a trick we can do to get ourselves to take the first step? 
it kind of depends on the intention underneath it. But you know what it reminds me of? A moment ago, I was talking about um, when I was first kind of conceiving the idea of the relationship that I wanted to be in. Mm -hmm. One of the important steps of it for me was to say out loud, kind of to address the universe directly and say, I promise you, I'll never settle for less. I didn't leave myself out an out. You know, I, I left myself out in the following way that I said, okay, maybe for some reason it's not in the cards for me to have a close relationship. If there's some other better plan for me, then okay, I can accept that. But this is what I want. I want this certain type of relationship. And all I can do is guarantee to say no if that's not what feels like is happening, if I don't feel like I have that kind of relationship. And so fortunately for me, it only took a month for to me for me to really manifest the kind of relationship I wanted. Of course, it took a lot of work for both of us then in the first few years of our relationship because we had really, you know, high intentions for how we wanted to be. And so we had to work on it 28 hours a day uh, for the first few years to do all those things like eliminate blame and criticism and learn how to be completely transparently honest with each other and to learn how to devote the right kind of time to our creative processes inside and also create time for the relationship. Those were big things that took us years and years and years of fine tuning to, to work on. But we had the basic gift in a way that we had given ourselves of our commitment of a real high, clear commitment to what we wanted to create. Mm, very, very interesting. You are writing a sequel, and I understand, to The Big Leap. And I really enjoyed The Big Leap. And also, I want to thank you for reading the audio version yourself, because I think it's so nice when authors actually do that themselves. Um, and two-part question, I guess. One is, one of the things that really struck me in The Big Leap was, and you've, you talked about the zone of genius versus the zone of excellence, and we've talked a little bit about that on the show before, and I've, I've had Susie on to talk a little bit about hers. Um, and there are so many articles and videos out there of you talking about The Big Leap. I don't want to necessarily use this time for information that can be found elsewhere. And I love your, your point about and your concept of Einstein time, too. That really resonated. The thing that I just keep remembering that rings in my head is that you said you haven't done anything you really didn't want to do for about as long as you can remember. <laughs> That's right. so, that is a pretty amazing design that you've set up for your life. Can you talk a little bit about that? And then also give us some idea of what to expect in this sequel. Yes. Well, the sequel is a little manual for how to live in your genius. Good. It's what you need to do. It's particularly, um, I have a, a particular process that I'm teaching in the book. That is one that's kind of like, uh, imagine, uh, I don't know how to surf personally, but imagine if somebody waved a magic wand over me and I suddenly began to be able to surf, you know, to balance on water and to uh, function in a whole new domain in an easeful way. Well, that's what I teach in this particular process because it gives you kind of the, the mental and spiritual equivalent of learning how to surf instantly. 
And so it's a tool you can use all the time in your life and your love relationships and your money relationships and your um, relationships with your students and teachers. And so um, I'm very excited by it because it's uh, it gives people a new way to live in their genius. And um, my life goal, really, my purpose of my life, which I formulated when I was back in my 30s, was to live each day in a way that I'm expanding in love, abundance, and creativity every day as I inspire other people to do the same. That's what my life is about. That's what turns me on. That's what, that's me in my zone of genius. And I, I've kind of quit using the term zone of genius. I just call it living in your genius now because the more I coach people on living in their genius, they realize it's it's something that it doesn't feel like a zone anymore. It feels like all of them. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and so what we're trying to do is turn on this little spark of genius in ourselves and get it so that it's we're feeling the flow and the richness of it all the time. Uh, so um, I'm working in my early morning hours on this new tool, and I ho- hope to have that out sometime in the new year. So I'll keep you posted about that. I'll make sure you get a um, an early copy so that you can give me feedback on it. Oh, I would love that. I think that's uh, that will be very helpful to people to be able to to identify and figure out how to live to live in their genius. And tell me a little bit about these mystery novels that you you've been writing but now are becoming a TV series. So this oh, is a yes. big well, deal. <laughs> it's a big deal. Well, thank you for asking. I I literally just got yesterday the terms of the deal from the Netflix people. Um, Yes, it's very exciting. Some years ago, about, let's see, seven years ago now, I had finished writing The Big Leap and I, and it had been sort of adopted as a Bible of the coaching industry. And I was very grateful for that. It became a big um, hit from the very beginning and um, continues to be here seven years later. But I was, um, I figured I'd kind of said what I wanted to say in the realm of personal transformation books. And I was looking for something else interesting to write about, to kind of take a break from writing uh, books about transformation and relationship. And one day I had the flash that I'd love to try a mystery novel. I've loved mystery novels since I was a kid. When I was, I think when I was about 13 or 14, I discovered uh, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes by Arthur Conan Doyle. And I became obsessed with Sherlock Holmes for a year. In fact, my freshman in high school English teacher, uh, Miss Wood, used to call me Sherlock because I used to give book reports on Sherlock Holmes all the time. And uh, after a while, she <laughs> made me start reading other books. And uh, uh, so I wouldn't um, just use Sherlock Holmes. But to <laughs> me, he seemed like the most fascinating character. And also the mysteries were intriguing to me, too, how they, you know, the plots of them. So Seven years ago, I decided to reinvent myself as a writer by learning how to write a mystery novel. And so I wrote my first one as a um, kind of an, almost as an experiment. And then I got a co-author, Tinker Lindsay, who's a screenwriter friend of mine, and we started working on them together. And she took my first novel and tweaked it to the point where it was much richer and had great more, you know, better dialogue in it and just the great 
kinds of things that a, co- a co-writer can do. And so ever since then, she and I have been a team. Uh, she lives down in L.A. and uh, lives literally under the Hollywood sign. Her house is you can kind of look out the window of it and see the <laughs> Hollywood sign. And um, so she uh, and I have collaborated on these a line of mysteries involving a Tibetan Buddhist detective in Los Angeles who goes by the nickname of Ten because his nickname uh, because his real name is Tenzing Norbu. And that's kind of a mouthful. So his friends just call him Ten. And so he's a, a detective. And um, he also involves meditation in his detective processes. So we created this particular character. And we've now written five novels um, about this particular character. And so um, uh, we're very excited that um, the folks at Netflix and um a production company down there have uh, decided that they want to turn it into a television series. And so we're uh, eagerly looking forward to seeing what they do with all that next year. I I love this. I love it. And it also is such a great demonstration that living in your, in your genius does not, it really transcends a swim lane of career or work. It's um, I think it might be easy to get caught up and think, oh, okay, you know, Dr. Gay Hendricks is a coach and he's a psychologist and he does X, Y, Z. And, and no, you're expanding <laughs> and, and creating abundance uh, in a variety of different ways. And that's, that's so cool. It's so cool. I'm excited about this and we'll have to uh, keep talking so I can let the listeners know when, when it will be time to finally, to finally watch and absorb these mystery novels in the form of a TV series. So congrats on that. Oh, thank you. It's been a a dream of mine for some years. Once I started writing the novels was to uh, get them out there in the movie world and the television world. So I'm happy to see. And also the people at Netflix are just wonderful people to, um, you know, creative, great people to work with. Right. You can't find a more innovative brand and and what they've been able to do uh, in their trajectory and and life cycle. So that seems like a great match. Well, Gay, thank you so much for joining me on the show and and hope to bring you back on sometime. And we'll definitely um, keep checking in on the the sequel for The Big Leap and all your other projects. And I I just want to thank you so much for, for not only your time today, but everything that you've been able to share. It's really impacted my life. Well, thank you. And thank you for your commitment to living in your genius and for assisting your listeners to live in their genius. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to the show. Hit me up on social media to let me know what you think. I'm at Amy Jo Martin on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And I want to hear your Why Not Now moments so I can share them on the show. Just send me a note to whynotnow at amyjomartin.com. For show notes and other offers, you can visit amyjomartin.com forward slash why not now. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for my email newsletter for exclusive content and announcements. A big thanks to Rock Salt Music for all of the tunes by the talented John Coggins. And of course, a hat tip to Richard Grewer for editing and producing the show. I'll see you next time. And until then, why not now? Oh,